Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm David. And this is the Practical Guitarist Podcast. The podcast for people who eat, sleep, and breathe guitar. I'm back. We're back. It's been a while. I'm alive. It's been a while. I'm alive. <laughs> so if you guys didn't know what happened, I got an intense, intense ear infection in my left ear that was so bad that I couldn't wear headphones. And then when I went to the doctor, I started getting medication that didn't do anything at first. And then I went to another doctor. They gave me different medication. And that started to help. But. What ended up happening was the ear infection got worse in both ears, and there was this point of equilibrium where they were, like, really bad, and I couldn't wear headphones at all. I couldn't sleep. I was laying on my back to sleep and stuff because I couldn't lay on my side. And then all of a sudden, like, the stuff just started, you know, going down, and everything was okay. Now, I've still got problems with my left ear, but um, we're going to get that taken care of. I actually spoke with doctor today I sent them a message they, they said they would refill uh antibiotic for me if i need it so um hopefully that'll be hopefully next week i'll be able to be back at 100 percent. but um it was excruciatingly painful and i know people like make jokes so this isn't just an ear infection listen <laughs> this was not your average ear infection i have had ear infections my entire life and i am one of those people's like yeah no big deal no this was like laid up in the hospital kind of bad so uh, I took some time off from the show, and I wasn't going to push Jim to do an episode when I wasn't around. And so here we are, three weeks later or two weeks later, or whatever like, it ended up being. Uh, feels like I'm terrible eternity. at solo episodes. Well, it's not just that, but it's just it's just an eternity of. Uh, we were kind of going back and forth last week trying to get an episode out, and just neither of our schedules is lining up. And because um, I've been I've been okay for a couple of days to be able to to be able to podcast, but um, so here we are back on the show, uh, back in the saddle again. Um, which is probably going to be the episode title. Um, Jim and I wanted to address some things that had been going on in the group, I think. One of the things that came up was, uh, I think it was Derek Durance who bought a um, Martin acoustic guitar, and then there was an issue where he was posting pictures of this gap, and there was some conversation going on about bolt-on neck guitars and set neck guitars. Now, before we even get down that path, I want to I want to point out something to our listening audience. I'm not an acoustic guitar expert. I am in no way, shape, or form qualified to talk about acoustic guitars the way that I am about electric guitars. To the point where I actually thought solid top acoustic guitar meant that it was not book matched, that it was a single solid continuous piece, and that that laminate didn't have anything to do with the the um what I would call like the vertical laminate where the top is one solid piece or two pieces that are book matched and then you know they stick pieces to the bottom of that that's actually how they do a laminate top i didn't know that until about two weeks ago so but i did know about bolt-ons and i did know about construction that way i just didn't understand the whole laminate process and how you would tell a laminate top which there's various ways and manufacturers get more, more and more clever on how to hide them um, so it's kind of an interesting, like, juxtaposition, I think, to at least let our listeners know that I am not an expert in everything, and nor is Jim, and sometimes right, we get it wrong. Right. Right. So, 
Um, Jim, you were you were kind of su- shocked and surprised that Martin does um, that they do, you know, set ne- or set next and boltons. Okay, well, Mark. Okay, so boltons are are. All right, we should talk a little bit about set net and bolt-on guitars when it comes to acoustics. Because it is done differently with different companies. Sure, they all do it differently. Our yep. friends, right. Our friends at Taylor have their own uh, way of doing it. Taylor is two bolts countersunk. Um, I do not believe they use adhesive in a Taylor joint. That is correct. Um, they now, don't. And they do that on purpose so that you can move the neck in relation to the top. Right. Um, and it's for maintenance and so on. So there, there's a very good purpose that uh, Taylor does it the way they do. So I'm not, you know, I'm not here to judge it. At first I thought, bol- I thought Bolton was like, what get the electric guitar? The you reptile, know, you... the reptile dentistry style of bolt-on acoustic guitar, where there's four well, bolts like a Stratocaster. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and if you search for bolt-on acoustic, those are the pictures that come up in Google Image Search, and there's a reason for that, and that's because you cannot see the bolts on an acoustic guitar since they're inside the body. Um, right. They use a special Allen or or screwdriver to get in there. To get to the um, hex key, Allen wrench, whatever, you know, inside the guitar to, to actually tighten and loosen those so that they don't have to reach in if they can avoid it um, and work on the inside. Because you can imagine what turning a bolt on the inside of an acoustic guitar is like if the sound hole is something like on an ovation, for example. Um, yep. And uh, so it, now in terms of tonality, I think there's I think there's some misconceptions because I I, I really do believe least in my impression and from some other people I've spoken with on this topic now, I think the construction of the body matters more than how the neck is attached. Okay. I all right. I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb and I'm going to say that it's that they're equally important when it comes to an acoustic. And the reason I'm gonna say that is when you microphone when you mic up an acoustic, we mic at the somewhere around the 14th to 16th fret. Um, wherever the, I should say 12th to 14th fret, wherever the body binds to the neck. So there is a, there is a correlation um, or causation um, for where the, you know, where the two meet. So um, I'm going to, so, so the way Taylor does it, and the reason they do it this way, is they kind of make a very unique joint between the two, and they use the bolts so that you can move the neck like a tilt, mm-hmm. and you can remove the neck to do maintenance. Right now, what I now I'm going by one lifetime luthier, but his his father is a um, a relatively famous. Uh, one-off builder for um, people, and he does acoustic guitars. Um, so he grew up with it. I mean, you know, he's a, he was a kid, and his dad showed him how to do all the stuff. And all right, so he told me, you know, straight up that it is a known thing that that 
um, Taylor, Martin, they all need work done on their tops at a certain age. Okay. Yeah. Comes to an age, you have that pull. So Taylor said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to make it easier. We're going to make it so the luthier can pull the neck off and they don't have to heat it, remove it, go through the, you know, the re-glowing process. All right. That's, that's fair enough. Um, the, the Martins that when they connect um, with bolts, the bolts are meant to just hold it in place right. so that then so it can be the glue joint glue. is solid. Right. Right. And that's what started this whole thing. One of our listeners had posted a picture. We had a Martin and in the Martin, there was a gap. And I said, there should not be a gap like that. The Martin, Martin glues the neck. And that's when everybody said, no, you're wrong. They do bolt-on. Well, they do bolt-on, yeah, but they, they also glue. No, they, they, they do bolt. a mix. It's and it's it, about 50-50. Their budget models are all bolt-on. Right. Um, right. But that particular guitar, I couldn't find anything that suggested it was bolt-on. That model. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't tell you offhand. Um, no, and I couldn't either. But that said, that might be one of those bolt-to-glue type arrangements it they may only be doing that for country of origin so it just may be like an unwritten right. rule if it comes from here then this is how we do it um exactly and, and that particular model is a is a i don't want to say this in a negative way so this is not to be a neck it, come, it comes to the top way. in mexico right i mean that's i i think it's a low-end american oh is it it might be a top-end mexican or low-end american i i saw it as a low-end american that's what i could that's what i I, did, I didn't so, know offhand, and I wasn't going to go dig and yeah. dig. I, it wasn't and all I'm that going, important to me, but I yeah, was I'm more interested in the uh, the bolt-on because because people like bolt-on. That's terrible. Um, and and you know, like so, um, I started asking around, and it's like, well, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing because I have heard right. I a birdie from a local shop that will remain nameless that I reached out to in regards to this that sells acoustic guitars. Um, and asked them, you know, what they thought of Taylor's construction. And one of the <laughs> the interesting thing was I got one person from the store that told me, yeah, they're, you know, they're fine. I mean, and I got another person told me they warp all the time, the next warp. And I don't know that that's necessarily a commentary on the bolt-on construction so much as at least in a Taylor, if your neck warps, you can replace it. Yep. Um, so, there, so it's got that going for it. But I wanted to talk a minute about what some of these acoustic guitar companies do but, to cheapen their guitars, like to get them down to well, the price point. Well, I wanted to make one more point about one of the other high-end guitars that somebody said, they're bolt-on. All right? Taylor is really the only high-end company that does high-end guitar, higher-end guitars that are bolt-on. I thought some of the carbon fiber guitars are bolt-on. That's exactly what I was going to say. The other one is Rain Song. Right. Right. Wrong, right. Carbon I, think, yeah. I think so. So so I did some reading. The the thing about Rain Song is just what you said. You 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 spoiler alert guy. Sorry. I'm sorry. It's carbon I, God yeah, forbid no. that the audience no. knows about it five seconds before you say it, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> it's but you're absolutely right. So it's carbon fiber. It's not a a an acoustic in the way that we know acoustics. So it doesn't make any sense to glue carbon fiber together that doesn't make any sense at all it makes sense to have a different type of joint you know what i mean yeah yeah okay so bottom line though 
if you like the sound of the acoustic guitar, you like the sound of the acoustic guitar. That's like, exactly what the hell right. is the problem? And we, um, and we were talking about that before. If, if you, you like, like the sound of it, like the sound of it. Now, here's the here's the hilarious part to me. So, um, going back and forth in some conversation with other people about this now, um, it has been pointed out to me, and this is something I wasn't keenly aware of because I'd played most of the Martins I've played have been, you know, your typical like normal Martin-esque style guitar. But um, I started looking at spec sheets as a result of these conversations and it came across uh, some stuff and ended up having some conversation with one of the guys in Old Stumpy and some other people. Um, they did plywood necks in yeah. Martins. They call them Stratabond. But Stratabond is basically pretty looking plywood that they use for uh, gun stocks. And Martin decided yep. to start using Stratabond, which is hilarious to me because it and they looked, used they it, made sure they used that name because they didn't want people to say, "Oh, that's because unless you were a woodworker, you wouldn't know that that was a type of plywood." Yeah, or or that it like it's basically like driftwood that looks pretty. That's basically what it is, <laughs> and it's glued together, which which is hilarious to me because now you've got like a pound of glue in your neck. Um, yep, and so. These guitars are – they still make guitars with Stratabond necks, which is just amazing to me. Uh, I figured the, the guitar buying public would be like, are you effing out of your mind? Um, <laughs> but apparently somebody must like it. I don't know. Uh, so they do, the, they do the Stratabond thing. They also have what they call exotic hardwood necks. And that's basically like whatever they had laying around that day – that they were going to make the neck on that guitar out of is what they made it out of. And it's so, basically leftover wood. That's what it, it, it. And they had that listed on guitars for two grand, which is why I'm like, oh my lord! Like, if you can't tell me whether it's mahogany or, you know, I don't, I don't even know what other woods they're using right now. But by, by, I had to list up the other day, and I was like, that's nuts. You can't. They can tell. buy serial number. Oh yeah. You have to. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, like, the guitar model should specify what the wood is. I mean, come on. Uh, it's not like, you know, strats where they have two wood options where you can get it in maple or you can get it in, you know, rosewood, but it's always going to be a right. maple neck. This is right. this is like a whole other animal, you know, where it's, oh, well, this might be, um, this might be uh, mahogany. This might be, um, it might be some uh, African limba. It might be... Yep. <laughs> <laughs> just, they're like it's back. funny right and this is like i mean this is cf martin people like this is not a fly-by-night company this is somebody well, who has an incredible reputation for building instruments that are of world-class quality what was it it was it in the late 70s maybe early 80s when martin decided that they had to get into the the lower end uh i say lower end didn't that, that when they started the sigma line or whatever i think so yeah and so the, the important thing was, I don't remember exactly the line, but it was like Martin was out of everybody. Martin and Gibson were out of that. That's why Taylor went and did his thing. He was like, I can, I can do this. I can make this up. And um, if you look at the time frame, kind of makes sense. He pushed them. Um, and he wasn't the only one. He's just one of the, obviously, one who rose above, right? Right. And... Um, so the, the thing about that, that story 
is that when they made the decision to do that, um, the creation of all these lines of guitars, it only made sense if you're if you're in marketing and you're in, you know, you've got people in engineering. Engineers are going to have to say, oh, well, most of our stuff is built at this little place and. What is it? Not Naz, not Nazareth. It's Nazareth, it's the other Nazareth one. Pennsylvania, it's right? Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, I knew it was PA, but I couldn't remember if it was Nazareth or the other one. That's it, that's like that. Anyway, um, you only have so much, you know, and you can only get so much that, you know, it, it costs too much money to put into a guitar or those every little fine piece of wood that you put in there. Have you ever opened a ten thousand? Have you ever opened and smelled a ten thousand dollar Martin? I'm being serious. I'm being honest here. No. Have you ever done that? No. Okay. I have. And uh, as recently as a few months ago, and it is an experience to open the case. We all gathered around to open up a $10,000 Martin. Because when you when you opened it, it was supposed to be a 1939 relic, you know, re reissue thing. New car smell goes out the window. You know, it's, it's like... It's like you open it up and you're in a pie, you're in a forest. I mean, dead serious. It, it is the most incredible experience. And then playing it, you play that guitar, and I'm dead serious when I tell you this because this is coming from a guy who is not an incredible acoustic guitar player, right? I sat down and played that thing, and there were there were notes and tones and volumes I didn't know existed in the acoustic world. And, and I'm dead serious when I tell you, unless you've actually sat down and actually played one of their super high-end guitars. And that's not even one of the more – there are guitars that they make that are in the $100,000 range, right? Yeah, but, um, I mean, that's out of the realm of affordability but, for most people. Right. And that's what I'm saying. And so that's why they had to get into this stuff that was like – I mean, even their, their low-end, um, high-end guitars are in the thousands, Right. But if we think about it, look at how much money is hanging on this wall. And, of course, there's two of them missing because they're in their cases. Um, but um, – and in my pedal board, and in my – if all I had was an acoustic, wouldn't that be about the same amount of money? We've talked about that before. I mean, yeah. Right? Yeah, but it's not – but that's the thing. You can't gig with one guitar, right? So – you I'll, might think, I'll ask you might think you can, Tony Arm right. Emmanuel. <laughs> no, I guarantee you Tommy Eman I guarantee you Tommy Emmanuel does not gig with one guitar. I guarantee well, I, it. I, I'm willing to bet that he plays one guitar most of the night. He has a signature model, so he's got the one he plays most of the time. He breaks a string, he's grabbing the other one, he's text changing that string. That's absolutely true. But you're not getting of through course. a gig with one guitar, period. Never gonna happen. Um not 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 you will not risk that. Um, even guys like Stevie Ray, who are, you know, instantly identified with that one guitar, they had backups, multiple backups, um, because that would just be the sensible thing to do. And that's what those $10,000 guitars are aimed at is the guys that go on stage and make a thousand or 2000 bucks a gig every night. You know, that's, that's, that's who those are aimed at. They're not aimed at you and me. Um, and I don't honestly don't think. So here, I'm, I'm going to give you my side of why I think Martin went the cheap route, okay? Sure. Martin decided to lower to lower their costs because Martin was on the verge of bankruptcy, okay? 
nobody was buying Martins in the 80s. Yeah. No one. And they were they were kind of panicking. And um, if, if I recall, that was when the one the one guy, uh, the family member returned to run it. And so he said, well, one of the things we got to do is we got to make an affordable Martin. And yep. they wanted to go the Fender Squire route with the sub brand. So they started with Sigma um, because they didn't want to tamper with their good name. And that kind of didn't work out. Um, people were not willing to buy a Sigma. They wanted a Martin. And I think it really just boiled down to the fact that acoustic guitars were not selling during that time period. They had somehow lucked out, ended up in a situation where they were on the verge of bankruptcy because they yep. didn't see the writing on the wall. And then all of a sudden, you know, in the early 90s, like things start flipping around and the company starts doing better. And I think a lot of people tend to blame the CEO when a company does better. But sometimes it's just trends in the industry. Right. I mean, you had what I think it was uh, Kurt Cobain was playing Martins. I think there were other people at that time during the grunge movement that were playing Martins that sort yeah. of like flipped the world on its head. And yeah, I, if you think about it, it was the power of the electric guitar uh, um, and, and Eddie Van Halen who killed acoustic <laughs> guitar, not just Martins, acoustic but guitar. acoustic guitar. Right. Yeah, um, that's what I'm saying. In general, acoustic guitar in general was going out the window. Everybody wanted to be. They had ovations um, and stuff. Do you remember that? Ovation became real pop. Wasn't the Every Rose has a thorn guitar yes. an ovation or something? Oh. And, of course, Heart was an ovation uh, uh, group. But One of makes, the few bands but, that but had But it makes sense because they were, they were playing these venues where they didn't right. care what it sounded like uh, unplugged. You know, they right. were more about what it sounded like plugged in. And, and that's fine. Yeah. We still have guitars like that. Look at the Acoustasonic. That's what it's for. Um, yep. And I... I guess what I'm I guess all I'm saying is that um, it's really interesting what these companies have done to get cheap and whether it's do a spinoff brand, compromise their quality like Martin has done with the Stratabon next. I would argue that's a compromising quality, um, especially when you can get you see they, they, part of it has to do with the fact that they don't want to dabble in overseas production like everything they cut they have comes from the North American continent. It comes from. You know, Mexico or it comes from the United States. And uh, they may be doing some other South American production, small runs or something. But I don't think they're doing anything north of the border. Um, and that's really interesting because there are some outrageously good acoustic guitar companies in Canada. I mean, just insanely good. Um, and one of the funny yeah, of one of the funny little excursions I've been on is I've been looking at Siegel really hard. They make a, an all solid wood guitar right now for $800. All. I mean, the sides are solid. The the bottom is solid. You know, The back of the guitar is solid. That's the one I said. And, have you looked at this one? <laughs> yeah, the Maritime. Um, it's it, Well, they make two of them. So there's a Maritime, and then there's a, the other, the Coastline, I think is a, co I yep. think it's a Coastline. Um, I'm looking at the Coastline really hard because I'm like, you can't beat an all-solid wood guitar for 850 bucks. I mean, yeah, and if memory serves, I think those trees are all from, uh, or the wood is all from trees from the uh, west west coast uh, of Canada. Um, so it's all old, uh, old growth, and yeah. Um, and the fact is, you know, it. This is something I didn't understand as much either. The reason why people love Martins is because they claim that because Martins are the really expensive Martins, of course, are made out of solid wood that they open up and they breathe. 
over time. Yeah. And I always assumed that was like kind of a mythological thing, but um, I'm finding that more and more people are saying, no, that's not mythology. The wood dries nope. and um, the fibers loosen over time. And I guess it, I mean, I, I shoot recurve bows um, on the side and there's a lot of lamination Same going here. on in that process. But um, you definitely break in a bow and I can imagine an acoustic guitar is the same sort of um, process. So yep. I, I I totally get it. But this is me telling our audience, I don't know right. all this stuff. I, I, I don't claim to know any, all of this stuff. I'm going to be the most amateur I've ever been when I talk about it on the show. Because I want people to realize, like, everything here is a learning experience. Everything we do. Right. When, when you listen to our show and if you take the information we're giving you seriously and you run with it, or if you just laugh it off and be like, you know, you guys don't know what you're talking about. I don't care. The reality is we provide infotainment, but I right. feel like it is, there's a clear line where I'm saying I don't have enough experience to make a real statement about something, and I'm probably going to look like a fool. I am an electric guitar player, right? And right. acoustic is a totally different world. It is, it is very similar in that the instrument is strung the same way to an extent because you have a wound G on most acoustics, um, but... It's different in that resonance. The materials matter so much more in the acoustic guitar world than they do in the electric world. I know people are like, oh, well, you've got to have a mahogany body to sound like a Les Paul. Listen, you can get w other woods that'll sound like a mahogany body. It, the construction and the hardware matters a hell of a lot more in an electric guitar than just like what wood selection you use. So... As Jim I, points at his Gibson. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we, we've said this before. Uh, it, with an acoustic, the more money you put into it, the more you're going to get out of it. That that more will come smaller as you get higher. Sure. But it's still going to happen, and you are going to get more out of it. And I truly believe, while I still think woods are important, um, even in an electric I think the glues are less important. Not that they're not important. Um, just they're less important. Uh, like the glue that they're using on the on the Gibsons, as long as it's going to hold the neck while it's hanging on my wall and it, you know, playing it. Those are the those are the things that have to stay. Um, if that glue gives out, then there's a problem. Well, you know what I mean. Well, I was just talking um, about the impact on what it sounds like with the hardware right, and right. stuff. That's right. that's what I was getting at. So there's a longevity. I think that's where the the wood in the in an electric are going to be cuz that in a in an electric the the glue or the bolts are doing what? They're holding it in place, right? Yeah, it's tension. That's the only thing they're doing. They're just holding the attention. There there's a little bit of of sound transfer, not as much. Now you take a you take an acoustic and that thing's got glue everywhere, right? And so that glue matters much, more. much more. But but even I would argue because of the saw because of the nature of the way an acoustic is constructed, because you're actually relying on the wood to vibrate, that's yep. really what causes that. In an acoustic guitar, yep. there's not much vibration. I have no. or an electric guitar, I mean. Um I yeah. have played electric guitars that vibrate like a mofo. And when they do my reaction to it is actually usually the opposite of what you think it's going to yeah. be, which yeah, is that, it's like, oh, <laughs> well, and the reason it, it's not because you're like, oh, it's vibrating too much. It's because right. 
you know that all of the vibration is getting lost in the wood. Yep. You want that guitar to be stiff as a board. You don't want to feel anything. Right. I mean, that's that that's that's where your sound comes from. And in, in an acoustic, it's a whole other animal. You want it to vibrate. You want it to resonate because that's where your sound comes from. Um, exactly. And I know some people will say the opposite. Well, I want. And now I'm not talking about a guitar that's that's acoustically loud. Okay, you could yeah, achieve that with things. zero movement in the guitar. I, I, I've seen that even in the acoustic world where you can find a guitar that's insanely loud but doesn't resonate at all. Like, there's no frequency content going on. It's like it's almost right. like a dead guitar. I don't think that's the case in electrics. I think you get an, you get a loud electric, you're going to have a lot of harmonics and stuff going on because it's, it's just the nature of that beast. It's a different situation. Right. Um, so, I, you know, again, your mileage may vary. If you're sitting there screaming at your... Uh, your whatever you listen to this podcast on or YouTube, um, more power to you. So, yep. um, but, uh, yeah. So I think we've, I think we've, I think we've further crucified ourselves on the acoustic guitar cross for the night. That's right. People are going to make more fun of us than we are. They ever have. All I can say is when I, when I'm playing and trying out an acoustic, it's a, like you were just saying there, it is a totally different piece. Yes. I want a, acoustic sounds from my electrics but it is not the way i want an acoustic to sound or feel when i'm playing it when i'm trying it out like you said there are resonance from the electrics that come from that stuff but that is the strings banging around so to speak what whereas i'm trying yeah go ahead i'm trying to think i had an anecdote for this oh the Shengze, the Red Unicorn. We haven't talked about it in a while. So when I got the Red Unicorn, I knew that thing was not good, right? And um, it's playable, but it's not a good guitar. Um, we've discovered some things about it lately that are just like, what? Um, but the, the Gibson SG that I had at the time when I got it, that thing was like three times louder than the than the Shengze. And they both have relatively similar sustain um it's not and and they both you know were reasonably similar in tone given the differences between the guitars obviously one is you know an inch and a half thick and the other one's a quarter of an inch thick um but they were that was that was the first realis- um realistic notion i had was when i strummed the strings and i went oh my god my sg is like three times as loud as that um and you could play the ST in the room and just like play it and people could hear you. You couldn't do that with the, right. the Shengze. It's like the most acoustically quiet guitar I've ever heard for an electric. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, again, you're going to get uh, different tones out of that uh, as a result. Um, so let's go on to the next thing. Let's talk about Jim's new gear corner. What the hell did you So. <laughs> do? I actually bought this a, a, um, a little while ago, but. I forgot to mention it the week we recorded, and I we didn't record last week. And so what I did was there was a special edition of a pedal I already had. So oh I went gosh. to the store. Really? What's that? Yeah. Really? Are you ready? Because it was the exact same price as the pedal I had. I thought we were trying to be. I thought we were trying to be like practical on this show. I am. If you bought that special and- edition, that's not practical. Well, I wanted another compressor um, because I wanted to do two different things. So I wanted the tone 
you know, blossom of, but I also wanted to be able to use it as a boosting thing with, with more, I'm, with more. I'm so glad we've more, done more. video because now the audience more can, is more. Now the audience can see when I roll my eyes at Jim. It's not just a, an inaudible thing anymore. Like I, I, you can hear, I'm sure you can hear it on the podcast too, but. <laughs> so this is the Keely. Look at the little heart. Isn't that cute? It's got a heart on it. Um, so this is the Keeley compressor. Is that because he just got out of heart exactly. surgery? Exactly. Compressor plus. And it is the the uh I don't know, the bronze edition or something. He Literally just... the only difference between this one and the other one is the other one is in a black plastic cover. This is metal. And uh tonally they're Are identical. They pl- they're plastic? I think that I don't think well, so. I think that's powder coated. It's powder coated black. Yeah, yeah, but that's not plastic. Yeah. That's metal, man. Um, That's what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. But where this one is a shiny metal, they leave it alone. And uh, these you are pay, brass. You paid for his surgery, his open heart surgery the other day. But, it, oh, that's too bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. He had a bypass or something. Yeah. Uh, but this is the exact same price. So if you look for one, if you like it, uh, it's the exact same price and it's kind of cool looking. They're a nice so. pedal. I like them. Um, that's just a yeah. Keely four knob compressor. Is that the, the, uh, Yep. Compressor plus. Yeah, the compressor plus. Yeah, the compressor, compressor plus. plus. They're yeah. they're they're good uh, good boxes. Actually, I know a lot of people that really like them, and I've heard it a couple times in person. I think I played it once. Um, Moni- monetarily, that'll be, probably be the last thing I buy for a while. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I bought a car. J- Jim bought a car. And he bought a beast of a car too. He bought a. Yeah, I don't even. I bought a, an Audi A3 diesel, um, and it has got. Yeah, he's uh, going to be putting a lot of fuel in it. Let's put it that way. What's funny, of course, knock on wood here. Um, it it's a diesel, and I was like, oh god, the freaking fuel price is going to be incredible. I go down the road, and diesel's only like thirty cents more than or twenty cents more than the regular. I was like, oh, yeah, it is, it, it is. Um, but you're going to eat tires. That's that's. Most people who have diesel cars, I eat tires eat because tires. of the way I drive anyway. So, so I'm you're going to be doubly it. screwed. <laughs> yeah, I always, my, my Civic. I probably have replaced my. I've owned my Civic seven years, and I pre, I've probably replaced all my tires ten or twelve times in those seven years. Every single tire. Um, I just I'm a, I'm an aggressive beast of a driver. Most people are like, "Oh, Jim, I'll drive." <laughs> I get off that plane coming down there. That's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna say, "I'll drive. I got this." Um, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so after you said that the other day uh, when I bought it, I um, I have been much lighter footed. <laughs> um, my son goes, "Wow, you're driving a lot slower, Dad." And I'm like, "Yeah, I've heard." Uh, because I actually like the tires that are on here, and I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, the tor- the torque will uh, it will definitely uh, ruin your tires on a diesel uh, much faster. In fact, uh, Teslas yeah. have that problem too, um, because they're yeah. Oh, yeah. super high torque. So, um, which is why you want to buy the super high end tires, and then pay the super high end price for tires. Um, so well. yeah, but it was nice when I went to put the diesel in it. Um, you know. I grabbed the thing and I put the diesel in. I'm like, wait a minute. And uh, then I found out that the size of the tank is the same as my Civic. It's a small tank. Yeah, but you, it, you'll it, get better mileage regardless. Oh, yeah. A lot better mileage. Well, maybe. Because you got you had a hybrid. Like hybrid. Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> maybe maybe it'll be the same. same. I had the same problem. I got the truck. I got the Ford uh, the Escape. It's not really a truck. When I got that thing, 
uh, I realized the tank was not nearly as high capacity for, you know, like mileage distance wise compared to my yeah. other. My other, I was filling up every week and a half. And this one, I fill up like every four days. It's like, this is abysmal. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I'm used to. I'm used to filling up every uh, like two and a half weeks. So we'll see. Well, I don't fill up much on COVID. I think it's about once a month at this point. But um, yeah. Uh, anyway. Yeah. So um, there's been a lot of stuff going on. I'm working on music. I've got various video projects. And I have three projects in process in various states of completion. Um, but none of them are, are done. And. I'm hoping to get some time this week, but it seems like things are ramping up at work for a couple of things. I'm trying to get some time off so I can actually do some podcast related stuff uh, as well as some personal stuff. But um, hopefully this week will will open up my schedule a little bit. But um, yeah, I don't know, man, like uh, music wise, I've got I've written four songs since COVID started and they're in various states of recording. One of them, I have to rehearse the hell out of it before I can actually sit down and finish it. Um, things are shaping up to be pretty good for me. I might actually have a full-length album if I include my EP material, which I am re-recording on top of the fact that um, COVID's going on. I decided I'm not happy with some of the performances. I'm. It's not really like I hate them, but I'm like, I can do better now. And uh, right. I'm also looking at it and going, I can make them sound better too because I'm I'm growing as a producer um, and, and engineer, um, which you wouldn't know from the podcast. Cause I slap this engineering so fast. I try to get it done so fast. So I can get it out the door. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, my engineering is gone. My skills are, they're increasing. And, and I, I really, I'm actually kind of, I'm kicking myself right now because I'm like, well, I wish I had known this stuff I know now last year, you know? Um, but the other, this is, I'm going down this weird path of like, I want to put other instruments on my records now. And so I'm yeah. starting to branch out and looking at things like the um, uh, Source Audio C4 synthesizer pedal, the Boss SY1, the Boss SY300, the Boss SY1000. Um, and I'm kind of like, well, I could play synth with those, but I also know enough piano that I could probably just buy a hardware synth and do it that way. Um, I've discovered this wonderful piece of software called VCV Rack, which is actually one of the few things that got me through uh, the the ear escapade. Um, VCV Rack is a modular synthesizer application you run on your PC or your Mac or your iPad, and you can literally just drag and drop all this stuff and run the cables just like you do on a real Euro Rack system, and use that to trigger whatever. And you could build, you know, these massive sequencer things where you're not playing anything. You just hit go, you know? Um, and I'm trying to incorporate some of that into my music, but it's also getting me down this path of like looking at other unique pieces of hardware that could fit into my studio that aren't necessarily guitar related. Um, right. So I'm sure I'll have a little bit of that kind of conversation for the show in the, in the foreseeable future. I can definitely see myself buying a Behringer deep mind. Uh, I've been looking at those pretty much since I started on this whole escapade. Um, and I'm just kind of like, do I want to go that way or do I want to do this with my guitar? Because I've done it with my guitar before. I had the Boss GR GK2A divided pickup and the Boss GR33, I want to say. Uh, which is whatever the small one was. Um, GR20, maybe. I don't know. It's one of their guitar synth models. 
And it was just basically general MIDI sampling um, with some pretty unique patch design stuff that was built into the software. And um, it was fun. It was a fun thing when I had it. And I don't think I was good enough back then to take full advantage of it. But I, but I definitely know now that I could get a lot more out of what I had because I wouldn't yep. be tracking audio out of it first off. I would just be tracking MIDI and then putting it into the software and doing all sorts of conversion and stuff. Uh, but it's like, right? is a, MIDI con- a guitar as a MIDI controller really going to give me what I want, which is the feel of a different instrument, the sound of a different instrument? Exactly. That's That's... I, don't know. I think that's a hard one. I don't. For me, I don't think it would. But you know, I'm not. I'm not you. Well, I mean, you can make I'm it convincing. Not. There's a lot of guys that use this kind of technology and can do really convincing, wild things with it. Um, I've done some organ stuff live with it. I've done. Um, I played saxophone on one song with it. I know I've done viol- various violin things. Um, because my playing style kind of lends itself to violin-y type things anyway. Um, so I know I can get away with it, but the question is, like, how authentic is it? If you know a piano player is going to hear that, and they're going to go, that's not a piano. You know, like, they didn't play that with a, with a, with keys. And that kind of bums me out a little bit. I know it's like, who the hell am I trying to please? But, um... It's just something that's weighing on me. Like, I'm not really sure where I want to go with that. Um, if you're listening, join the Facebook group. Like and subscribe. Comment below. Let me know what the hell you think about my conundrum here. Um, the other thing that happened to me... I have to stop and I have to, I have to take stock of what I've said to people. And stop and take stock of my feelings... And try to get in touch with my inner self. So I have been on this journey. And it's sitting right here. So I'll just grab it. Because it's show content anyway, right? I'm going to unplug it and take this off too. So this guy is my seven string Kiesel. Which, if you've been following the show for any length of time, you know I've had this guitar for quite some time now. You can see that the uh, there's a big like spot where I've worn it out pretty much already. Um, I play this guitar a lot, but here's the, here's the rub. It's a seven string and I have had a, a love affair, hate affair with seven string guitar since I got this because yep. I like the idea of being able to go down to a low B with certain chords, certain parts of my arrangements. Now songs I've done are written that way and, um, I can play them in standard and I can, I can, approximate you know i can just transpose the chords and whatever i I know enough to do that um i can actually do that on fly which is pretty cool but um it just kind of bothers me because i'm like well i'm there really aren't a whole lot of seven string guitars that fit me right as a person um and the kind of music that i make so jim yep the amount of companies that make seven string guitars is like mainstream companies, right? Charvel yep. makes one or two. Ibanez makes a bunch. Um, Schecter makes a bunch, which I'm not really, I don't really want to buy a Schecter for this um, because I don't think their body styles are that kind of neutral. 
They're very in the yep. metal the metal territory for the most part. Um or they have a funky headstock or some you know, it's always something weird. Um LTD ESP makes seven strings. Strandberg makes seven strings, which I'm not keen on the neck idea there. Um and that's pretty much it. I ain't a whole lot else, right? One or two models from PRS. Literally one or two, right? New, yeah. New guitars yeah. you can get from PRS. And they're both SEs. And they're SEs. Yep. I mean, I'm already the caliber guitar that's like beyond that realm. Um, I'd like to have another seven string. Now, before people start thinking, what do you need another one for? Tommy Emanuel doesn't gig with, with one guitar. Okay. <laughs> you should never go to a gig with one guitar. Now, that being said, I could easily go buy a seven string RG for 400 bucks and take that out and gig with it and use this guitar. Or Schecter. You know, do these two together, right? Or yeah. a El Cheapo Schecter, which we just talked about. I have my reservations there. I would probably go with an LTD before I would go with a Schecter, to be honest with you. Um, yeah. But um, I. I kind of sit here and I go, I'm just totally limiting myself to like a specific type of guitar that's just not popular. Um, yeah. They really aren't popular. I mean, to the point where when I was a kid and nope. they started coming out and everybody and their mother was making some sort of seven string variation, that's just not a thing anymore. People don't care for it, I guess. And then I've had several people in the group tell me, just get a baritone. I don't want the longer scale. Okay, and and there's another component of that. I've also heard people tell me just get a baritone and play, you know, whatever string gauges or whatever on it. And I'm like, the string gauges they always give out, the low B is going to be flapping in the wind. I play a 62 or a 64, depending on my on my Kiesel, because that low B string needs to be big and it needs to be tight. Otherwise, you're going to have tuning issues. Because what happens is you pick the note too hard, you pick the note too soft, it goes whoop whoop. And it's out of, you know, it just resonates all over the place. Um, yep. You you have to be mindful of that. That's why bass players don't play big flappy gauges and, and pretend they're playing rubber bands. Um, they, <laughs> you don't want rubber bands. That's the last thing you want. Um, I've actually been looking at I, Aristides, Aris, Aristides guitars. Yeah, um, I think it's Aristides. I think you were right. I played one a while back, and um, I didn't know what their deal was. I just thought they were pretty looking guitars, right? Like that there was a uh, kind of boutique metal company out of Europe. Um, yep. Played the guitar, didn't even bother to plug it in, right? Just played it acoustically, and I was, I was like, yeah, all right. It's it's because the music man that was hanging next to it. Um, little did I know that that guitar was made out of. Re, you know, resin and glass and carbon fiber. Like there's literally no truss rod. It's layers of carbon fiber, glass and resin molded together to form an exoskeleton. And then they basically take this, this um, proprietary mixture of resin and inject it into that. Um, so it's an injection molded guitar. Um, and if you've ever seen their factory tour on YouTube, uh, check it out if you haven't seen it. Um, they, they literally take bodies off the wall that they put together and they, they start dinging on them and they ring like a bell, man, because they're all one piece and they, it's the glass 
bubbles they're using inside, I think, that are that are the real magic. Because uh, if you know anything about glass, it resonates. It's why they make bells out of it sometimes. Um, right. So I, I'm I'm mildly interested, and I can afford um, I can afford to get into an Aristides if I go to the Raw series, because I don't really want to look on that guitar when you get a painted one, you're paying like three grand. And quite frankly, why would you pay for a painted resin guitar when you could get one that's died? Um, I think that's a much cooler proposition because then you wear that guitar out. It's never going to change color. <laughs> it's right. always going to look the same. Um, that guitar will probably outlive you um, and will never, even if it ends up in a landfill 200 years later, they're going to be digging through that landfill and that guitar is going to be in perfect condition, probably still in tune. Um because it's not going to warp. It's basically impermeable to any environmental stuff. Um, I my my concern about buying those kinds of guitars is like, can I have anybody work on it, or is it like one of those things where I do I have to take it to somebody who knows about these guitars? Or that was a problem that they had with the Steinberger stuff because the frets were glued on. No, it's Parker. Do you remember that gem where the Parker frets were glued on? They were like glued to a flat fretboard. Yep, and people were like freaking no. out because they were like, "My luthier doesn't know what to do." We'll cut the tangs off the frets and file them down and glue them on there. What the hell's the problem? <laughs> well, you know, it's a little thing called intonation, and uh... yep, <laughs> yep, and and fret positioning. Yeah, there's there's a reason for it's critical. Do. It's pretty it's pretty important. Yep. It, it might make a difference, yeah. kind of. Uh, who was the company? Kind of. that, who was the company that made that uh, eighteen-string piece of crap for um, uh, Jared Dines? Do you remember? Oh, geez, uh, it started with O. The Australian company. Yeah, um, didn't it? Not O. I should look at that. I should look at them too. Um, Ornsby. Ornsby, that's it. I should look at them. Orange Beach seemed like it might be a, a cool brand. I don't know. They're kind of medley. Um, I got to get like a compiled list of guitar companies. And I was talking to my wife. I was like, you know, what? What? so basically what happened? I, I didn't even get to the part about what actually happened. So I've been looking at Kiesel again because I'm like, they're really the only company that makes a seven string I'm even interested in at this point. And they did their uh, Labor Day weekend sale. Right. And uh, I could have gotten like $750 in options for free, basically. So I was looking and I priced out a guitar. I actually called them up. I talked to my rep over there, Mike um, Jones. And uh, I, I got a quote for a guitar and it was going to be like $2,100. I went to my wife and I said, you know, we got the money. I said, I. I know it's not the right time. It, you know, it's in the middle of COVID-19 and everything. But I said, like, I can get a good deal on one right now. What should I do? Because yep. this is how we do it in our house. What should I do? Because the real the reality is we both know that neither of us has any business spending this kind of money on anything. But it's like we need to have this conversation before anything like that happens. So right. um, she knew I was already on the fence. Like, I'm not really excited about this because I'm not just walking in and telling her, hey, I really want to do this. Um, I'm just kind of looking at it and going, I don't even know if this is what I want. And she said something to me that put me back on the path. And she said, do you really want to risk another $2,000 guitar on a company with the reputation that Kiesel has had lately? And I said, 
Mm, I don't think so. I, I did think about it for a bit. I didn't actually say that right away. I, I thought about it for a bit. I said, you know what? I really, as, much, as good as the one I have is, I'm comfortable saying that I don't know that I will get another one that's, that's that good. I don't. I really don't. I don't. Um, and so I kind of, I'm begging off. And uh, then I've gone back. So what is it about, what ahead. is it about Kiesel right now that's putting you off? Uh, the fact that they've had tons of customer service issues in the last six months uh, with things like okay, mismatched uh, baked maple and that kind of stuff because they just do it any way that they want to do it. And then the customer gets screwed and the customer can't argue with the company and get a resolution. Uh, basically, their customer service is crap over there right now. That's what I, that's what I'm hearing. Uh, and I've heard that from other people too. And that, but that scenario was a big turnoff. But there were some other things I've also heard that have been going on. And I'm like, mm, don't know. Um, I wouldn't order anything off book from them because I definitely don't want a guitar I can't return. Um, and and on top of that, I have heard of people who have gotten guitars from them that they could return that Kiesel wouldn't take back. So I don't know what the hell that's all about. I'm not getting in the middle of that mess. I'm. I know the one I got's good. I have a very strong feeling if I ordered another one, it's probably going to be good too. But I can't risk that amount of money. See, if I was playing with a couple hundred bucks, that'd be a different issue. It's two grand. Right. Like that's yep. a lot of money. Um. So, uh, I don't. I mean, I don't. I'm not a gambling person. But when I go to gamble, I take twenty bucks. <laughs> okay. I don't. You yeah. know. Um. Uh, so anyway, um, that's kind of why I'm like, I don't really know if I want to do that. That said, they have incredible resale value. Um, and I really think per, per that conversation with my wife, I was like, look, instead of trying to outlay some big financial thing where you'd have to put out like $100 a week until it comes in or whatever, um, why don't we do this? Like, I'll take the $100 a week out that we would have paid if I'd bought a Kiesel right now. And I'm going to put it into a savings account. And when push comes to shove and it's time for me to get another guitar next year, I can go get that money and find the guitar that I want. Right. And so that means I can go play whatever the hell I want. And when that, when that comes time and find the right guitar to fit me, um, which I think is probably the smartest approach I've ever taken to, to looking for an instrument. Um, I really don't want any more guitars. Like, I want to stress this to our audience. I, this is kind of more of a, um, a selfish need at this point. Cause I need it. I, I really want to have it for doing some recording stuff and also for having a backup when I start to gig next year. Cause I'm, I'm hoping to start like trying to book some gigs next year. The other component of this is I have great six strings for playing, you know, old stumpy or whatever other six string jam thing I want to do. I have two good ones that I'm looking at on my wall next to me that are like no brainers. I'll take that golden LG P90 guitar and go play gigs with that. No problem. I mean, it's right. not, it's not a pricey guitar, but man. It's, it, it's a dragon slayer. Um, and the, the uh, S 500, I mean, it's the best strat that I've ever played that, I, you know, for, for my needs, it fits fits my needs and personality, because um, obviously I played better strats over the years, but that significantly higher prices, um, and significantly older. Um, but 
I just don't I like like you, Jim. I'm just kind of at the point where I'm tapped out. I don't really need other guitars. I honestly, right now, um, and and the uh, the truth is, I don't need. I have no need in any gear whatsoever, with the exception of strings. I have no needs. I don't even feel the need for an amp. Nope. I mean, I've been talking about buying a triple crown because every time I play one, I'm like, they're so good. But um, I want to I want to say something to our audience is probably going to shock the hell out of everybody. But I'm to the point with amplifiers and sound and gear where it's like I can make it work. I'm not really all that worried about what I'm plugging into anymore. Which is the weirdest freaking thing on earth because that for, for 20 years, I've been playing 20 years. For 20 years, I've been worried about what am I plugging into? What's this going to sound like? And now it's just kind of like, well, can it give me some Marshall dirt? Because like, if we could do that, then we're, I think we're good. You know, um, Even a Fender amp, like, well, I got my King of Tone. I'll just plug this in and, you know, it's, it's fine. Um, but I'm not, I'm really not like, I'm not hung up on gear right now. I'm just not in any way like plugging me, plug me into a good amp. Just one that sounds decent. Um, I mean, if I walk into a gig and there's a blues junior there, I'm going to be like, eh, or, or like a, a rolling cube or something. Um, but I mean, I can make those work too. So, right. which is crazy to me. I've been playing the camper and I realized that like, I haven't even changed the, um, the profile on my camper in probably a week. Um, I had a friend in from out of town this weekend. He was, uh, he stayed over and, uh, hung out and, um, I did a little, like little mini performance thing. Cause he was here and I was like, I'll just run through these songs, see what he thinks. And, um, I didn't even bother to change the profile the entire time. And I was just sitting there thinking like, wow, that profile has been dialed up for about a week now. They haven't even touched it. And I was like, kind of sounds like my katana a little bit. I was like, thinking in the back of my head, well, I can't, it doesn't matter. I can make it work. It just didn't even like I wasn't even gonna waste time to do it. It just didn't didn't matter. It's like, well, I'm just gonna play because that's what I do. Um, and that's the other thing is my gain settings are like not nearly where they used to be. I mean, I'm I'm playing it like Jimmy Page levels of gain right now. It's <laughs> it's not nearly like over off the charts or anything. So, um, it's a good place to be though. I mean, you and I, yeah, it's a gym. Jim, I have to commend you for this because I know this this episode is more of like a conversation between the two of us, but I but I have to commend you for this because you you have bought and sold more guitars in the last two years than I've probably had in ten. Okay, yep. You've got you bought and sold amplifiers more times. Well, not more times than I've changed my underwear, but you bought you bought yeah. and sold them more frequently in them. some cases. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I can't even like there are amps that we talk about on this show that I'm like, oh, yeah, Jim had one of those, didn't he? Like, I forgot yep. how Jim had six, yeah. six katanas, six katanas yep. during the life of the show. Yeah, six. five or six. Yeah, easily, easily. And maybe um, more. <laughs> six katanas. Like you've had two Marshall. Um, two Marshall codes. Oh, codes? Two DSLs. Two DSLs. Yeah. I was, I was thinking of the two probably, DSLs. Probably three or three, four. No, you had three um, DSLs. You had three DSLs. You had one DSL oh, yes, 50, you bought a second one, and then you sold both of those in the course of the show. Sold both. And then you got yep. a, D, a DSL CR, the 40 CR. Yep. Um, 
You had an which amp, I like. You, you had an amp one. You've had yep. God knows how many practice amps, um, which is really? just hilarious to me. That that's so the, saying, probably twelve. But you know, it, it was, um, it was a, a a weird thing where I was searching for something that wasn't there. That's true. I was searching for something that was that didn't exist. Do you know how many Fender um, uh, clean amps I went through? I mean, I owned three. Three of those little, what do they call it, Blues Junior? Yeah. Three Blues Juniors. And didn't know they had foot switches. Okay, I, I'm just letting you know, that's how, that's how fast I went through them. Um, and yet, if you really think about it, this year, this, this fiscal year, which is pretty much since I started at Guitar Center, I've only bought and it's sold. And it's, it's funny because I bought that, the, the, um, Les Paul, Les Paul. Uh, well, no, I did. I, I sold my two, uh, my two fenders that I had bought before that, but I bought, I sold them to buy the one. You know the the Holy Grail one, and that was the that is the Ultra, which is actually sitting in its case. You can't see it because of my chair, but it's right there. There it is. There's the case. Um, so, and I um, I purchased my uh, my acoustic. That was last year. My acoustic. This was the beginning of this year. The um, the only thing I bought recently was the V that's in the shop right now. Still in the shop. I told them, don't rush. Take your time. Do it right. I know there's a lot of people ahead of me, and they need their guitars for gigs. I don't. So October, November, I don't care when I finish. But the point is that as I've, you know, and I bought all these pedals. I mean, remember when I bought all, I mean, I bought a flurry of pedals, right? I bought, you know, I'd, I'd get a compressor, then I bought a, I bought another you tuner. Still have, I this, I you still have like a $900 board. It's I do, easily nine hundred dollar board with the, the two power supplies and the board itself it's like are five hundred like, bucks. Yeah, yeah, five hundred bucks. Then you add all the pedals. I'm 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 over a thousand easily on that board. And I'm not trying to brag because I see these channels. You know, my stuff is hidden. You know, yeah, I, my stuff is covered because it gets used. It yeah. leaves the house. My my fanciest yeah. piece of gear is under a cat blanket. <laughs> we I don't got, actually oh, try gotta... to show off what we have. <laughs> I'll introduce the puppy before the end of the show. But um, the truth of the matter is, and I know you're you're kind of in the same boat I am right now. I don't need anything. I bought this because it was. Remember, I got it for my the, the price I got. So. Uh, you you know I could share that with you and you alone, but, but you never need I it until you actually need it, right? Like till you but go to the gig and then something pops and you're like, oh crap, right, I don't I have a backup okay. guitar. Throw that in, yeah. And so the point that I'm trying to make isn't that I'm bragging. I don't. We do this show. I don't have everything hanging behind me in this you know elaborate array of of stuff of a wall of gear and and and. If you've got, if you tell me, if you're a guitar player, you tell me that you've got a wall of gear, and you've got uh, uh, layers of pedals, and you've got 
amps coming out of your yin yang, and you're not Tim Pierce, who's who's using like one for five minutes to get one tone and another because he's getting paid to do it. He sits in that cockpit, he calls it for a reason, right? So that he can. He can he's like he's like everything. He is plays one in. long sustained note through the plexi, and then he switches over to the twin for a few minutes. <laughs> right, right, and he switches out guitars. And he's, he even admits he's got more dings and dents in his guitars from bringing them in and out of that 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 little area. He's got like this little dinky. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like a place that could just fit your butt through it. You know, <laughs> he's like he's like this getting out right. But the point is, the point I'm trying to make is he's he's doing that for a reason. He's that that is his profession. Um, I, I cannot get my, wrap my head around people who believe these channels and these people who tell them, oh yeah, these are all my favorites. Oh, shut up. You are not playing 12 guitars a day and you are not, you are not playing. If you're not playing, you know, a couple, maybe three or four, I can, I can see three or four, Matt, I can see three or four. To to say that you're playing that many and you're not a professional musician, I just I just find it, um, you know, suspect. All right, all right. I got I, I, I to share why I had to look at my phone during the episode. Sure. And this Go is this it. is a totally personal thing. Um, I have for years heard of the show Twin Peaks, right? And I had never watched. Oh, yeah. I had never watched any of it, and so I saw okay. it's on Netflix the other day, and I'm like, all right, I'll bite. So I started. Oh, can you bring Drogon over for a second? I started watching. I started watching. Right, I'm knee deep in it now. I'm I'm season two somewhere, and uh, I ran into my brother yesterday at my parents' house. They were having a cookout, so I went over there and uh, hung out for a minute. And I started to talk to him. And before I left, he started watching it, and then he just sent me a message during the show saying donuts, and I'm laughing because <laughs> I remember all the donuts. Yeah. Like, do you want to give me some donuts? No, I don't. Um, <laughs> anyway, you're gonna hate the ending. Um, no, I'm not. not gonna, no, I'm not no, because they finished it on Showtime. Oh, you you saw it? Oh, no, okay. I know that they did the revival and all that, so I'm not gonna hate the ending. Okay, you've seen it. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna introduce my new family member here for a second. Here he is. This is okay. Stay there so you can take him back. Good God! This is Joe Gone. Drogon, hi. That, Say hi, Drogon. That no, dog no, is infinitesimally camera, small. Isn't he, isn't he adorable? He's tiny. His name is Drogon. Um, he is eight weeks old. He is like a little puff ball. Um, and he is camera shy right now. He's usually very camera uh ready. Good, but I think he's I think he's uh tired. Is he tired? He looks like sunset, it. he's tired. He looks exhausted. Go lay down. to the camera and say, Hi guys. He's like, what are you doing to me? He, my son's right there. So don't think I'm just like. You're just throwing him across the room? Like, that's what I do with my cats. I'm like, wee! Yeah, the cats always land on their feet. You never know where the dogs are. Have you, ever, have you ever seen that movie, uh, UHF? Where it, Today, we're yeah, teaching with, poodles how to fly. <laughs> throwing them out the window on a pile of dead poodles. It's awful. The Weird Al movie? Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah. Oh, my God. That Badgers? movie. You know. It, <laughs> but anyway, getting back to the gear thing, I think that that you know, even even my interface, I I kept the only thing. Now that I'm going to say this with a caveat, the only thing I might get is a captor, a two note a two notes captor. 
was it the Captor X or the Captor yeah, Plus? Yeah, you want the one. Yeah, you want the higher end Captor, right? Captor X, so that it can go right out of the other eight ohm connection on my um, amp, go right into. Right. You know what? That's the only thing that I'm. Uh, that is something I am going to get this uh, probably this fall, winter solstice, yep. whatever the hell you want to call it. Yes. Uh, probably going to get a um, another computer. Not to replace the one I have, but just strictly for right. recording and mobile so I can move it around. Um, so yep. the kids, if they want to use a computer, can use a computer and I'm not tied down here. My wife uses it for video editing as well. So that's another thing. Like it would be nice for me to be able to go and do recordings in the bedroom and stuff. Um, COVID is making me realize I should be way more flexible than I am. Uh, right. <laughs> because I can't move around my house. I'm stuck in one room. I don't have a laptop. Right. Um, so this is this is my life. Which is why it always looks like a disaster. That's why there's curtains sitting over there, right? Um, so that's going to happen, and I'm going to get an interface. And I basically told my wife the other day, I said, I'm just going to get a UAD. Because, yeah. listen, it's, Universal as audio. much as I hate the um, walled garden thing, right? I, I mean, I can't yep. I can't say it strongly enough how much I hate that concept. I'm looking at the UAD stuff and saying, it's the industry standard right now. You look at the Apollo? Yeah. I haven't even looked at, at, at what Billy Eilish's brother did their record on. You know, that's the big thing. It's like, oh, he did it at home, you know. I am willing to bet it was a UAD interface. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm willing to agree with you I, I, 100%. I, honestly... And I've heard okay, so who is I think it was Andy James or somebody like that said that they do drums with a um uh the focus right, and I kind of giggled because I'm like okay, so what? Because I have I have a Presonus you know interface and I can do drums with it. I have enough inputs to do drums. Here's the reality: if I do this with the Presonus, I'm going to do so much massaging inside the DAW. To make it sound good because the preamps suck on it. Um, they're they're not good. I mean, okay, so they they're not, they're not bad. I I want to I want to back up. Like they compared to the interfaces that I grew up with. Um, when I was in college, I got my first interface. It was an Emu, um, which is basically Creative Labs, right? Like super high end stuff at that time because they bought Emu, who used to be like a synthesizer manufacturer or something like that. Um, the emu I had sounded okay. Uh, the preamps on it were not great. It was reasonably well rated. And I didn't know enough about recording to take advantage of what I had. So fast forward a couple of years, I install it in another PC because I actually still had the PC cards and everything. And this is probably 10 years ago at this point. And then I got to go kind of run through what was going on with it. Um, the breakout box didn't work for some reason, but the uh, the existing like microphone preamps that were on it were not good. They were pretty bad. And um, I had, gosh, what was the other interface I had? I had something else back then too that was not good either. Oh, that was the other Presonus box I had. I had they had this little modular box, and I forget what it was called, but the whole idea was like you could daisy chain them together, and it was. Terrible. The preamps in it were horrendous, um, and they were noisyish. I, I, I'm gonna keep away from the explicit rating, but yes, you know the word that I wanted to say. Yep. They were noisy as shit. 
Okay. Um, yep. And it was a... Uh, I don't know how far away you were from it, but sure, okay. So, so when I got my uh, Steinberg interface, right, my, my Cubase interface from like, that's probably seven years ago now, six years ago, that thing was a step in the right direction. The preamps on it were pretty good, okay, for that time period. They were pretty good. They were warm. They were punchy. They had a little bit of clarity on the top end. They were not like too fat and stuff. Like they weren't farty. Some of these, that's what, okay, so I have a um, focus right at my office that is for work. I do voiceover stuff with it. The focus right I have at work does not sound good. Okay, it sounds big and it's big and fat, but there's nothing going on in the top end. So I'm boosting thousand hertz on up every time I'm recording something because there's nothing going on in the top end, no matter what microphone I throw at it. The PreSonus is very similar. There's not a whole lot going on in the top end. Now, I can get away with it because I have kind of a nasally voice, but when I'm recording other people who are speaking, this would not cut it, okay? Um, not without post-processing, a lot of post-processing, right? Um, and if you could think about that, that's just voice, right? So try to do a try to do a drum kit, which is literally seven different voices or fifteen different voices in some cases, um, or you know however big the kit is, right? Depending on how many mics you got going and stuff. Plus you got all the phasing yep. issues, and then you run it in this thing where there's like no, there's not really like this treble clarity that you would expect. And then you run it into your DAW, and you're going to have to basically use all your system resources to to uh, print these drums so that you can get them to sound good to print them. And then you lose the ability to go back and change that stuff if you need to for the mix because you printed it. Okay. So the UAD, because the stuff runs inside the box, a lot of their plugins runs inside. I think that's actually an advantage. And I think the preamps on them actually sound pretty good without anything applied. Um, the other box that really stands out against the UAD is the audience stuff. Now, I haven't seen their prosumer stuff. They've got a new line out that's all prosumer, but the stuff they sold, it, they were selling through Sweetwater. Um, I got a chance to mess around with it and hear it. Um, not this, not last gear fest that was in person, but the one before that. Um, they're pretty good sounding. I mean, their preamps sounded pretty, they were, they had a lot of upper, like they were a very vintage sounding preamp. Whereas these are, Definitely modern, definitely more EDM focused in my mind because they got that solid low end thing going on. Um, and this is not something that somebody who doesn't do a lot of recording is going to be like super familiar with. If you're just getting started with recording, just go buy yourself a Focus, right? Just go buy yourself a PreSonus. You don't really actually have to have these these pre's until you know why you have to have them or why you want them because you don't really even have to have them. I could just still do post-processing. But the point is, you might find that they work for you. But for the kinds of applications I need, it's not going to fit. Not going to fit. And for people like Andy James claiming he's doing, I think it was Andy James, I think, who said he did all this drums with uh, Presonus, uh, not Presonus, but the uh, Focusrite Scarlet 2i or 8i or whatever, 18i8, which I think is the one I have at work. Um, I highly doubt that. And if he did, he's doing a lot of post-processing. I highly doubt it. Same thing as people saying, I just recorded 
my pod, you know, there was, I recorded my pod. Okay. Who is your mix engineer? Because the reality is this albums are made twice. They're made once by the band and then sent to a mix engineer who does it again. And they do it by, you know, just basically making the mix. Right. So you might think I just recorded this pod straight into here and then the mastering guy didn't do anything and the mix guy didn't do anything. But if you're in a major label and you've done that, you didn't just use a pod. Don't lie. Don't don't lie to yourself. Don't lie to other people. Because we all know that that's a whole other ball of wax in terms of how that, that sound gets treated. Um, I'm not saying that I could be able to pick out a pod on, a, on, on the radio. But there are definitely some sounds I've heard in the past where I'm like, that was not what they said it was. Like, they took a direct guitar track when they recorded that and then they went and reamped it because there's no way in hell that was done digitally. Um, there are definitely times, especially older records more than new stuff. Like when the pod XT came out and stuff like that, it becomes a lot harder to tell, but like the original pod, the pod 2.0, I remember Steve Moore saying he used the pod 2.0 on, uh, on something and people like lost their minds. They were like, Oh, he's a pod 2.0 user. And then he quickly, in the next interview you read with him, he was saying, well, I did use the pod on this, but we only used it for doubles because what we because we realized that it didn't sit well in a track by itself. <laughs> because he probably talked to the mix engineer, and the mix engineer was like, no, we didn't use that. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? <laughs> we took your direct signal, and then we, we reamped it through a JSON 800, and a, you know, it's like, <laughs> oh, oh, is that what we did? Oh, I know I was monitoring it with the pod, you know? Um, yeah. But... I think also you're not going to, it's like if you're a metal band and I'm not saying this to, to frustrate anyone, like I like metal too. I listen to, you know, various metal artists, um, vintage and new, right? Um, you don't really require the levels of dynamics in that music that say like, you know, blues or country or jazz requires in their music. And so when a band says in the metal genre, uh, I think it's Meshuga has done this, right? Where they're like, we put, we recorded our entire album on a pod XT live or pod XT pro or something like that. And it's like, okay. Yeah. Because the gain was always at seven or eight with some sort of tube screamer out front. Like I could buy that. It's like, there's not a clean part on that record, you know, like, well, <laughs> um, and, and there's also this, this misnomer that people are like, well, we did the whole record this way. And, uh, I remember, I, I remember, um, I think it was, uh, Mark Tremonti. Mark Tremonti has made a lot of mistakes in interviews over the years. There was a, there used to be a clip of him saying, I want my guitarist to sound the meanest, the, 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 like the meanest guitar ever. And it was literally like, and then, and then they, they spliced that with him playing like, um, uh, one of the clean parts off of like, um, the second album, uh, like arms wide open or something like that. And it's like the meanest that it could ever sound. And then they're like, thumbs wide open. <laughs> it's like with this clean, clean guitar. And it was just so funny because I'm like listening to this. I'm like, dude, you can't pretend like that album is the heaviest thing you've ever done. There's no right. way. There's no way. And and um, 
he always made out like, well, you know, this is how we did this the, the song on that record. Like we did the whole album this way. You know damn well that they're grabbing different guitars for different tracks. They grab they may have two or three different of the same head to do different things because they sound slightly different. It's it's never hey here's the amp we're gonna use and we're gonna use it for the whole record. It's like what fits this song. It, a, a good producer and a good engineer will be like, what can we do to fit this song? Um, just like Slash and and the Appetite for Destruction record, they use that that. Famous JCM 800, um, the one that had been modded all to hell. They had a JCM 900 that ended up on that record, which I don't know how that happened because uh, I don't think that came out until 1989, right? The 900? No. Um, yep. Or, or th- maybe that was the, the – they were saying like, oh, no, it was a Silver Jubilee. Now, maybe it was a Silver Jubilee I'm thinking of because they were like, oh, well, that ended up on a couple of tracks even though he really wasn't into them at that time. And so it's like there's this big juxtaposition, and they had other JCM hundred heads in on that record too. So people are like, oh well, that was the head. Yeah, maybe well, for they, like one song. You know, they like, spent a little time. Yeah, they spent a little time lying about that for years too, because they didn't want anybody to know that they still had an amp that they said they lost. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> stolen or something. Right, that they right. actually stole. Oh, and it, and it ended up that that amp is now in the possession of uh, George Lynch. Because yeah. Lynch wanted it to begin with. Lynch was ticked yep. because I I want to say it was like actually his amp. And it was sitting there yeah, being serviced. Slashed. Right. And then they just started they renting it, it out because because George Lynch was taking forever to come and pick it up for service. Yep. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> um, it's that whole thing is just like so hilarious to me that people think that records are done with like, here's the Les Paul they used to do this entire record. That's never how it works. I watched a making of Mastodon, right? They were like making of, I think it was um, The Hunter or something like that. And they went to the studio in uh, Atlanta. And this guy was showing off all the stuff they had and the stuff they used in the record. And there was like a room full of amps. And he's like, yeah, he's like, this was on, you know, a couple tracks. And this was on this one. And it's like, they didn't make a record with like one guitar and one amp. No one does that. That's just not a thing anymore. Um, because... You want all those tonal textures and the ear candy and all that stuff to go into making these modern productions. And so oftentimes, like, um, I've heard some producers say things like, well, you know, the reason the way I get people to come to my studio is I have like these fantastic collection of great guitars and people want to use them. So I Rick, uh, Rick Beato's good example, right? Like he's got great guitars and great amps and great drums and, the, and it's not because that's going to help his end product. That's an attraction to people to come and play there. Like, yeah, okay, so right. they're going to sound good regardless. I mean, you could have pieces of shit that sound good. That doesn't mean anybody's going to come there. Um, he looks for the stuff that actually attracts people to, like, I really want to record a record using that amp. You know? Right. Um, so just keep that in mind when you hear somebody say, I'm using a pod to record my record. Like, if they're a real art, if they're a re- recording artist, not real artist, but I guess everybody's a real artist, right? Um, if they're a recording artist that's making decent money and has high paying gigs and has like a large commercial side to their music, which they, you can't trust what they're saying because they don't even have control over their music at some to some extent. Like they they go into a studio, they record it. And then the, the record label signs off and then they send it to their mix engineer and then it gets distributed. 
right? Like after it goes to the mastering engineer after that and it gets distributed and everybody's yes. like, everybody's happy and nobody says anything. Nobody's mad, you know, because the record's selling, right? Um, there's, you know, there's also one caveat and everybody wants to think that their guitar player or their, their bass player or their favorite drummer would never have done this, never had this happen. Sometimes the person you think tracked the guitar didn't track the guitar. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's Came a whole in, other and they and they played and then the, the producer was like Ugh. and so they have to call in their buddy and they give them a one off pile of money, whatever it is, and then they say, Thank you for coming in. We are never gonna tell anybody you were here. People and that happens. People think that and, only happens in the pop world. And there are people who have been on the cover of Guitar World, bass player, drummer, modern drummer, you name it. Um, and they were not the person that did those tracks on those records. Do you? I mean, and, and it's it frustrates me. I, look, I've seen some of my favorite bands live and i go wow that there's just something missing about this it's just it doesn't even sound like and then i go back and i listen and i go back and i listen to them and i'm not talking about guitar parts i'm not talking about um layers i'm not talking about anything i'm talking about simple stuff like you know the the thing that makes a part special you know like rick beato will say what makes this song guitar or this song great and he'll he'll show how they slid into a part, or they slid out a part. They used a they used a weird chord, or they didn't. Or, or he won't show because it got copyright struck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> but um, and then I go, just there, there's just something missing here. And then I remember, you know, because you, you hear about these things, especially from people if you hang with these people, and then they'd say, "Yeah, that wasn't the Rolling Stones. It wasn't them." They were not, they, they came in, they recorded what they did. They got Mick to finish his part and they brought in the pros from Dover. Uh, that's a mash reference folks, the original movie. Um, and then those guys come in, they, they layer down the real parts or the, the, the parts you remember best half the time are not the great musician that you thought. And it does not go as far back as you think that's as recent as now it's <laughs> that, it ha that happens <laughs> it still happens it happens daily um people are bringing in ringers all the time um that's why yep. guys like carlos alomar are still out there because that dude was a ringer yeah um yeah and i mean people seem to think that this this was limited to it's like in the 90s growing up listening to you know the new metal stuff that that i've talked about shamelessly on the show before um i'm willing to bet Probably 75% of that music was recorded by a handful of people. Because, like, when you when you consider how much of the drum sounds between some of these bands were, like, literally the same damn samples, I wonder how many guitar players actually played on the records for some of these bands. Uh, obviously, people exactly. pride them. And they may not even know they didn't play. Okay? So that's, that's, that's the thing that's you've got to realize. That that's they, the other side of it. They may not even be aware that it wasn't them. And and it's so that sounds terrible because you think you'd like to think that when you hear a recording of yourself, 
You're like, yeah, that was me. Like, I can totally tell it's my style of playing. Um, but when you're playing rhythm work, which predominantly, that, I mean, this, the guitar solo was dead for 10 years. When you're playing right. predominantly rhythm work, it's a lot harder to tell, you know, who it is. Um, there are obviously some people out there that have very specific styles. Um, but, I mean, how much of that new metal genre was the rhythm work, like, basically identical between bands? Yeah. Which is why I'm kind of thinking, like, I wouldn't be surprised to find out there were, like, three or four dudes, or or maybe a woman, I don't know, um, doing, like, 70% of that work. Because um, there were only, like, a handful of producers doing it, too, which was a whole other... Right. That was another thing that, like, kind of shocked me as an adult to look back at that genre and go, wow, I didn't know Rick Rubin did so many of these records. Like, or Yeah, the, Rick Rubin or, and Ro John Rock. Or, uh, Bob Rob Rock. Bob Rock, thank you. Yeah, Rob Bob Rock. Rock did a ton of them. And yeah. uh, he ruined Metallica, too. Um, was that? That was Bob, that was Bob Rock, right? Did yeah, that was yeah. Rock. That was Bob Rock. Yeah, he was the one. A lot that of people think he brought him, he brought him to life, and other people think he ruined it. But well, Saint know. Saint Anger, he's responsible for Saint Anger. So, oh God, help us! Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are, that are fans. I'm not a fan um, of that of that era of uh, when when I read an interview with Kirk Hammett that said he embraced the fact that they didn't do a lot of solos on album. I thought you have just sunk to the lowest of lows, man. You have, that's all that your fans want to hear. Your I fans will, want to hear you I play will, what you do. I want to provide some commentary on this and then we'll, we'll end the show. If you've seen some kind of a monster, some kind of monster, the documentary about the making of St. Anger, basically, which, which was not supposed to be about the making of St. Anger. Right. Um, but ends up becoming this thing about them them in therapy and um, goes off on a whole other tangent. Kirk Hammett in that documentary is like nowhere to be found for like three quarter of it. He's off surfing and just not like he's just phoning in. It's like not even there. And I got the distinct impression he was basically divorcing himself from the conflict. He did not yeah. want to be involved. And so when they went back in the studio, he phoned it in. And so he could say, I'm proud of not doing solos or whatever. They were BS. The reality was this. I think he's so non-confrontational, which yeah. given his history with other bands and stuff, like he was in Exodus and things like that. Yeah. I think he basically just said, you know, I just don't want to get into it with these guys. And... They can sort this out amongst themselves. I'll come up and play the solos when they're ready to get this thing kicking. And then, of course, they start yeah. working on the record. And I think they were, if you watch the movie, they were definitely up against some deadlines. And I think they just said, Kirk, how do you feel about not doing them? And Kirk's like, yeah, it's fine. You know, don't even worry yeah. about it. Just well, let's get the record out. <laughs> like, Now, was that, the, was that the one where Rock stepped in? Uh, because New Newstead was gone, and so Rock played most of the I bass parts. I want to say, if not all of them, possibly no, because they actually hired a bass player while they were recording that record too. Though, I um, I think well, okay, so there's a Gibson interview with Bob Rock, mm -hmm. and he talks about yeah, I, I think he did. I think album. he did play bass on it. I, he, I he jumped in, he played bass, and then he toured until they found, or well, when no. I say toured, they did a few um, like. 
here's the album and here, you know, I don't think I, I so. guess showcases. No, he played live with them. Not to yeah. my, not to my knowledge. Um, yeah, he and, and it wasn't, talked. no, no, it wasn't Bob Rock. It was Rick Rubin. Um, he, oh, made, Rick Rubin. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah. I get those two confused. Yeah. Right. Right. So, and I do too, obviously. Um, so wait a minute. So wait, hold on. Rock also wrote and played all of the bass guitar parts in St. Anger as Jason Newstead. Oh, no, so it was it was Bob Rock on that record. Jason, it was Bob Rock. Jason Newstead left Metallica in 2001 and was the basis of the band's live performance until Robert Trujillo joined the band in February. So who, wait, wait, wait. Rock, say, so, wait, are they saying that Rock was the basis band for live performance until Trujillo? Or are they saying that Jason that, Newstead was? Because I knew no, they weren't playing so, at that time. Okay, so Rob Bob Rock, I had it right the first time. Bob Rock wrote and played the bass because he was just sick of it. Um, they were looking for a bass player. I, I one, one a person I know was one of the people that yeah, tried out for. But anyway, a bunch they, of people. They had a lot of people. Yeah. They had a lot of people go in and out of there. That, hundreds, that, that's not hundreds. Really that. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, so Rock was like, "Oh, this! I'm just going to get these parts done." Um, there's a great if you watch uh, Gibson TV or whatever they call it. There's a Rob Rock interview where he he's got a long form thing. It's it's a good hour and a half long. Uh, it's as long as the show just was. Um, and he talks specifically to, I think it was just showcases, but he did play live with Metallica until Truillo was picked. And yeah, got but it's like two performances, I think. But it was only, yeah. And he said to he said he hated every minute of it. He, was, <laughs> he said, that was not what I wanted to do. I'm not doing that. Um, that he was, that, that, that whole experience that whole album experience and some kind of monster and everything else really drove him to where he just didn't even want to be I part think, of them. I think the reason they switched, I, mean, I think the like, reason they switched to Rick Rubin was because Bob Rock probably told him I'm not interested. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He was like, Oh, you guys. I'm <laughs> well, he, he, he signed up for that and was spent two years of his life recording that record. Yeah. Now he may have been doing other stuff on the side, but like they can you imagine just, how much in, money they spent. Come in, that. Come, I mean, in they, re, come they, in to record, and then you show up, and then the band's just fighting. And you're just sitting there like, yeah. what the hell am I even doing here? You're just you, burning yeah, my you're, time, you know? You're playing referee and coach, and then they brought in that freaking self-help guru or, yeah. uh, you know, water oh, guru. Uh, the and, one who, like, got really frustrated when they fired him because he was like, no, I'm, like, the fifth member of Metallica. Like, <laughs> he... He needed mental therapy by the time it was done. Yeah, I know. I mean, poor guy. Because <laughs> he started to believe he was a member of the band, or he was so important to the band that he was going to tour with them. Like, he was crazy. Yeah. That, that documentary that. is wonderful. You want to see a band yeah. fall apart? That is right there. Yep. Yep. That was everything. And, uh, you know, in later interviews, you know, Hetfield has said several times, it's just him and, him and uh, Ulrich are just too... Type A's that do this they all the time. They always fight in the studio. That's nothing new. But the but the problem with that record was they had just lost lost Jason Newstead. Yeah, and then wow. Hetfield went into rehab, right? And then that basically just threw everything for Luke because it's like too much major change all at once, and the band wasn't even sure they were still a band anymore. Right? Like it was like, what is going on here? Everything has changed all at once. And then they came back and like people are. This is what gets me, man. 
this is what gets me about about that record specifically. But load and reload are pretty universally panned. People are like, oh, God. Um, people still like the Black Album, which I think the Black Album is a little too much like Load and Reload. Um, but I it, liked the Black Album, but, but that it, was the end of it for me. But anyway, uh, my, my favorite record and the best one uh, out of the lot was uh, the one right before the Black Album, which is uh, which yeah. I, which also the one with the most problems uh, uh, in Justice for All. But anyway, um, yep. when you look at when you look at how that all panned out, Load and Reload were not good, right? Black album debatable, and because I know a lot of people like it, a lot of people don't. And they had Garage Inc., which is just a covers record, like they could phone that one in, right? And then they did Say Anger. Say Anger is awful, but Say Anger is the one that everybody hates. And I'm like, but what about Load and Reload? They're just as bad. Like they're they're like the songwriting is just terrible. And then they make this big thing out in, in some kind of monster. It's because well, Hetfield went and got sober, so. You know, like you think that that the lyrical content was going to change a whole lot between St. Anger and Load and Reload, and it really didn't at all, which is why I'm like, I don't really think him getting sober really affected the band the way that they made out like it would or the guys get, feared it would. Um, I I get the feeling listening to St. Anger after Load and Reload, because you, you mentioned that. Um, I got the feeling that what he did, and of course, I'm, I, I'm not in his skin. I think his his ability to create was gone already i think those brain cells had been killed before load and reload so when they went in and did those um the reason i think that it sounds the same is kind of like you remember those um those 80s and 90s movies that have generic music because they can't afford like real um like, real bands, like right? the music from um, twin peaks positions. yeah and so they they bring in exactly you got me you got it <laughs> <laughs> And it's it's like, um, you know, they're just okay. Here's some power chords. Here's a guy playing a fluttering uh, solo, and then here's some, you know, I got my SG hanging behind my head, and you know, and it's like that, that's what Saint Anger felt like to me, like a like a generic. Okay, we've got to write. Okay, what are we gonna do? All right, well, we're Metallica. The same thing we've so always we done. About, yeah, uh -oh. we got to write about this stuff. <laughs> and right, okay, what key is the song gonna be in? Well, of course, it's going to be an E flat. That's what everything's in. Just shut up and play an E flat. I mean, it was like <laughs> we got to be able to, to chug was... the open string. <laughs> yeah, that's why they just tuned out. Oh, or do they tune down to D for that? I can't remember. I don't know. It was either D or E flat. I don't. Oh, know. I, I wouldn't be surprised that record was down to C. I mean, they they, they went through this period where they thought they and were a the modern metal band, like they were a new metal band, and it was like yeah, nobody wanted to was... hear that. That was the other thing, and and that was another thing that uh, what he called what he got in Guitar World. He was he was talking about how oh yeah I'm so happy we're tuning down so low. He was not <laughs> was not. He hated every minute. I'm sure that what he did was like, all right, you know what? I'm making money. I'm just gonna so, do what everybody else is doing right now. Like we got how this. how else am I gonna buy um what what guitar did he just buy? The famous Les Paul, the green uh, the green oh, beanie um, or whatever greeny. Yeah, he, he bought, well, he's had uh, Peter Green. He's had Peter Green's Les Paul for quite some time. That's yeah, that's, Peter Green's yeah. Green's he's ball. had it since the nineties, I think, because I think that was on Load or Reload. He used that guitar for for one was of it? those albums. Yeah, well, he's been showing it off a lot lately. So well, I yeah, he, he didn't know what it was when he got it. He found out later what wh whose guitar it was. Like he had no idea, and it came up because Peter Green just passed. So, 
Um, that's why. That's why they were showing it. Anyway, anyway. So uh, we have covered a lot tonight. I have been David. I have a Jim. And tonight we've been practical guitarists again. <laughs>